Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. We are in a series that's sort of a, a DNA kind of series where I'm hoping to establish at least some philosophy of ministry as to why we organize the way we do, um, why we offer the things that we, that we offer is not just their good ideas, but we're trying our best to be obedient to the, this is, this is the Lord's church, it's not ours, so we're trying to do what, what he, he calls us to do. In, in 1 John, I want you to hear this again, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, he says, John says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. What, what John is saying is that if you are going to claim to have your identity in Christ, then your life will look like his life. In Matthew chapter 28, verse, beginning in verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Now, Jesus gathered people into different size groups. And yes, I know I've talked about this over the last few weeks, but I want to catch everybody kind of up. Jesus gathered people into different size groups to accomplish different character building components necessary for discipleship and disciple making. And and so I've, I've said this again over the last couple of weeks, but we are not called to simply be disciples. We are called to be disciple makers. So if we're going to claim to be a disciple, one of the key ingredients in being a disciple is that we make disciples. So I am convinced that we not only need these for the same lessons that Jesus taught, the same character that he forged, the same groups that he built. And so each of these things that Jesus requires or the essentials of discipleship are necessary in the making of a well-rounded disciple. And it makes us then capable of obeying the commission of disciple-making or making disciples. Making disciples is our divine call. It's not just our call as a church. It's what every disciple is called to be. And so, again, little heavy, little, little heavy-handed here, maybe a little, but... In order to be a Christian, Jesus also said that if we, if we obey his teaching, if we abide in his teaching, then we will know the truth. So obedience comes before truth, and truth says, and by the truth, we will be set free. So if we want to be free in Christ, we must know the truth. If you want to know the truth, you have to walk the way Jesus walked, because that's how you learn truth. Truth isn't disseminated to us through facts. It's learned because he is a person. Discipleship is imitation, not education. You're going to hear that several times today. Discipleship is imitation, not education. And my fear is that the Western church has spent generations emphasizing education, 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 Bible study, Bible study, Bible study, And yet, we know lots about Jesus, but we don't look much like him in our daily activities. So, it is a, it's not a mandate for the religious elite. If we're going to be disciples, it's only after we're disciples that we begin to make disciples. When we make disciples, then we look like Jesus and are capable of being called Christian, like Christ. So the mandate of making disciples is given to disciples. You see, that's kind of like this preaching. That's pretty easy to follow, isn't it? It's easy. But it's not a mandate for the religious elite. It's not, 
it's not a mandate for those that are spiritually gifted to make disciples. There is no spiritual gift. There's not a disciple-maker gift. It is a call to all of us, every disciple. So, in, and in fact, when Jesus mentions this in, in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus attached each part of the command back to the making of disciples. So, the go and make disciples, go and make disciples, going is a part of it, baptizing is a part of it, teaching is a part of it. Okay, so these are the three components that make up how to make disciples. Go, and that's a present tense, which means as you are going, as you are living your life. And he says, well, you know, most people read that as a missionary verse, like God calls some to go. But the truth of the matter is, there is not a Christian that is not called to, as you are going, your life is about disciple making. Everywhere we go, it's about disciple making, looking for the opportunity to imitate and to call out the imitation of Jesus Christ. So in the going, it's the purpose of our going. Some of you go to work, some of you go to the store, some of you go wherever you go. If you even go on vacation, wherever it is you go, understand there is a disciple-making component always looking for how to imitate and cause others to imitate Jesus Christ. And baptizing is about identifying with Jesus Christ. It's about bringing people into the identity and identification with Christ and teaching them, which is the, the component of teaching them what Jesus taught, which is becoming like Jesus. So all of these are so that we can make disciples, going, identifying, teaching, imitation. Disciples cannot be made without these three things. And scripture is clear. I won't take the time to go through all of those, but, but disciple making requires intentionality, relations, relationships, and being very missional. Very, very important. Disciples aren't, as I think is, I don't think anybody's ever been taught this, but disciples aren't developed as a result of time. I mean, you don't say yes to Jesus and just become more like Jesus because you get older. It's not how disciple-making works. It, not as a result of time, but intentionality. Disciples aren't developed through information, but imitation. If we don't use the method that Jesus used then we won't have the results that Jesus had and commanded. All right, that's, the, that's our motivation. So Jesus gathered people into different kind of size of groups. And if you haven't been here over the last couple of weeks, Jesus, Jesus gathered thousands of people together. He, he, he gathered hundreds of people together. And it is here that he taught, he motivated, he gave direction. He challenged people to think differently, to consider a different perspective, God's perspective. And this in our relationship, this is where we find acquaintances, people that we recognize, people that we are willing to be friendly to, people that we would say that we may even know, we find motivation and we find inspiration to continue. Jesus also gathered people into uh, smaller, large groups. We talked about the 70, give or take. And it is here where Jesus developed mission and service and practice and uh, they shared things in common. They shared same issues or we would use the word affinities and they brought those issues in a shared environment and they worked through them together, hearing each other dialogue and share. This is where we begin identifying the kind of friends that we wish we had, the kind of friends we need and the kind of friends we want. We're able to see ourselves in people and we are drawn more deeply into some relationships than others. We begin to share ideas about we, what we wish our identity was. We begin to share our hopes in these groups. It's where we learn to hear, where we learn to share, and where we learn to relate. Now, with the big, huge, big groups, we learn to be motivated. Here, we learn to relate to one another because we're hearing and we're sharing mutually. Remember, again, discipleship is not about information. It's about in imitation. 
Jesus taught that it's through relationship that imitation occurs most powerfully. So it's in these groups where we begin to see different nuances of who we are and how other families are living or how other disciples make decisions and and understand Scripture and, and bear out different applications of Scripture. Good discipleship is a balance of relationships, experiences, information, and imitation. Have I said it's also about imitation yet? Listen, discipleship is imitating Jesus. And I'm tired of throwing that word around so loosely. Like, Like if you go to enough studies, you're a disciple. Disciple is about imitating Jesus. I think in the Western church, we have a tendency to emphasize information downloads over relational discipleship. What if I were to tell you that you can never be more like Jesus than your relationships, not your Bible understanding? You don't become like Jesus because you know more about stories. But by practicing the life of Jesus, understanding the life of Jesus... Discipleship, then, is a lifestyle. It's not a meeting. It's not an event. It's a choice that lasts a lifetime. Jesus also gathered the 12, the small group. These men revealed private information to each other. They argued, not like enemies, like friends, like brothers, They acted like brothers. Sometimes they agreed. Sometimes they talked about each other behind their backs. Sometimes, if I were to ask you how many of you have ever been hurt by somebody, everybody in this room would raise their hand. If you wouldn't raise your hand, would you please raise your hand now? I'm just kidding. I don't want you to do that. You know, so because we've been violated, because we've been hurt, because we've been damaged, because people have hurt us before, sometimes even church people that we did learn to trust, it's really hard. And sometimes we even say, I'll never do that again. But I know Jesus is important, so I'm just going to stay out here on the periphery. I'm still going to be connected, but only at an issue level. And so church becomes self-help instead of imitation of Jesus. You can't imitate Jesus in a large group. It's not the way it was designed. It's not possible. So the Great Commission requires risk takers. If you want to imitate Jesus, you have to be a risk taker. You have to learn how to trust people over and over. And trusting people requires setting yourself up to be hurt. If you don't think that these 12 that Jesus called out didn't set themselves up for failure, you're wrong. They did. They took a significant risk to everything that they knew. You say, well, if Jesus went to church here, it wouldn't be as big a risk to trust him. I get it. But we have to trust that Christ is... When you start seeing Jesus in people, it's a whole lot easier to start trusting him. Everybody, and I want to set this very clear, everybody is not worthy of your trust. But when you get to know people at a personal level, you begin to see Jesus. And you start drawing Jesus out of people and allowing people to see Jesus in you. So the Great Commission requires risk takers, not cowards. And you may say, well, I'm just not a risky person. As you are obedient to the Holy Spirit and you engage with people the way Jesus showed us, you are then empowered to take risks, but for his glory, not yours. And see, God actually gives us a process for this. And, and you've heard me talk about this before, but like in, in my relationships, like I would say my, my primary relationship was the Lord that requires like very little risk for me. He has proved himself to be faithful to me and I trust him. I can confess anything to him and give all that away. There's nobody that I can be more honest with than God himself. Second relationship is my wife. And because of our ongoing relationship, I can tell you we've been together since we've been, we've been best friends since we were 12. And because of that, it requires almost, almost no risk whatsoever for me to trust her. And yet sometimes I'm a little coward. Sometimes, but then I have to think through it. 
What am I afraid of? I got to think through the whole thing. And, but it takes very, very little risk for me to be in a relationship with my wife. With my family, with my kids, it takes a little more, but not much. With my Christian brothers at church, it takes a little more. Because I know they're men just like me. They're capable of hurting, hurting me. They're capable of betraying trust. I've been betrayed many times, and it hurts. But I know what they say they believe. They say that they trust Jesus. They say that they can be counted on. But I also know that sometimes people fail you. But it takes less trust, I mean, yeah, less risk to trust them than it would say to a complete stranger. But the Lord gives us relationships, and out of those relationships, we begin to practice. We begin to get better at learning to trust, learning to have discernment of who can I listen to, who will listen to me, who is helping me to become more like Jesus, who is loving me well. Jesus gathered a group of three. It's here we begin to trust enough to be vulnerable. Not just to share the things on my heart, but for them to tell me what my heart is really saying. Because I've got blind spots. I might misunderstand my heart. To be able to share my heart and have a Christian brother say, I don't think that's right. Vulnerability. Accountability. You know, I share my heart, but it's here where I can actually have my mind purified in honesty. Here we stop pretending. You know, in a, in a small group, I can pretend. I can say the right things because I know what the group needs to hear. But in this group, there is no pretension. Here, we stop giving ourselves the benefit of the doubt and we start listening. Here, we begin to be mature. It is here that we are intimate with each other. It is here that we begin to be impactful and truly understand who we are and not who we wish we were. We begin to be open, and now they're not acquaintances, and they're not friendly, and they're not even friends. These are brothers and sisters, and I'm a brother and sister or a sister to them. We are not offended, and we're not seeking to offend because we know their heart is for us. In fact, we share the same heart. We are truly hoping to see Jesus in us, but also committed to seeing Jesus in them. It's a mutual relationship where Jesus becomes the goal. In a large group, we find out what the issue is. In a group of 70, the issue or the mission is the goal. In a transparent group, Jesus' likeness is the goal. And we no longer see warts and wrinkles because we're too close. And everybody begins to look like Jesus at this stage. We don't talk about what we do in this group. We talk about who we are. It takes a long time to develop this kind of a relationship. Most often, this group flows out of a larger group over time. And Jesus has to attend this group. Or what will happen is, if it's just a group of guys who get together, a group of women who get together to converse, it always grows back up into being you know, the, next, the next tier, the personal size group. If you take a very quick survey of Jesus' ministry of the Gospels, it, it reveals that there were some places that Jesus only took Peter, James, and John. He didn't take the 12 everywhere that he went, but he seems to have taken Peter, James, and John everywhere he went. Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus took three men with him. Peter, James, and John, those three alone got to witness Moses and Elijah with Jesus as Jesus is transformed. When Jesus healed Peter's mother, it was Peter, James, and John that he took there to Peter's house. When Jairus came to Jesus and said, you know, my daughter is sick, it was, it was Peter, James, and John that got to go on that trip. Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane the night that he was arrested. Who did Jesus take a little further? Peter, James, and John. He took them to a place that he did not take the rest. And did you know that if you read the book of Acts, from beginning to the end, every chapter, 
The only disciples mentioned out of the original 12 are Peter, James, and John. None of the others are mentioned in the book of Acts. It appears because of the intimacy and the closeness and the impact that Jesus had upon their life, their leadership responsibility became significant after he left. It was Peter that preached at Pentecost while the others were there. Peter and John healed the lame beggar while they were going to the temple. Peter and John are brought before the Jewish council. Peter and John were sent to the Samaritans when they found out that they had received the Holy Spirit. James is actually killed by Herod in Acts chapter 12. None of the other disciples are mentioned in the book of Acts. That doesn't mean that they're less impactful. It just means that they are gone as missionaries they're doing other missionary work but when we are setting the foundation for the first churches it's Peter, James, and John the ones who were intimate, close honest, real you think about all the conversations that Jesus had who was it that he said get behind me Satan it was Peter because he had this relationship with him over and over you see Peter, James, and John being the ones looking for special treatment because they had a special relationship The Bible says it's not good to be alone. <laughs> See, it's here in these relationships where you move from high grit sandpaper to fine sandpaper. Things begin to be polished in your life. It's not good for us to be lone rangers, it's not good for us to be lone pioneers all out by ourselves, carving out our own time. Many have been taught that needing someone is a sign of weakness, especially men. This is especially true, I think, for, for many men, that needing someone or being in a relationship is a sign of weakness. But that's not modeled in the Bible. But it seems to be modeled in our culture, this the standoffish, tough guy that no one really knows, the mystery man that nobody really knows. He's the tough guy, the rebel, the do-it-yourself guy that knows everything and doesn't need to consult anybody about anything. Relationships are for the weak and the needy, but that's not Jesus. It's actually the opposite. And all of the Bible speaks that God uses the most vulnerable the most humble to do his greatest works. In fact, you have Peter, this tough, do-it-yourself kind of guy. Jesus actually has to break him down before he's usable. Before Jesus goes to Jerusalem, knowing that he was about to be crucified, he goes to see his good friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, this special connection that he had with them. Remember how comfortable they were speaking to Jesus even before and after Lazarus' death. There was a familiarity, a closeness, a freedom that came being able to talk to Jesus. Can you imagine walking up to Jesus saying, if you've only been here, nobody gets away with talking to Jesus that way unless you're in this relationship with him. I was thinking about James and John in, in Mark chapter 10, verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come up to him and, and said to him, Teacher, we want, <laughs> we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And it sounds like, like, like something your kids would say to you parents, right? Uh, Mom, Dad, I want you to say yes before I tell you what I want. <laughs> and, then, and he said, what do, you, what do you want from me? What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Can you imagine that? Jesus, we know that you are the Messiah. We know that you're going to sit on the throne. And, uh, you know, John and I were just kind of thinking, mm, we know that you love us more than everybody else. Could you just prove it by... One here, one here. Really doesn't matter which one. We'll, I mean, I'd like to be on the right, but whichever one really is fine. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with, with which I am baptized? Jesus is talking about his crucifixion. Jesus is talking about his, his torture. And you know what they said? Yeah, we're able. <laughs> we're able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. 
And with a baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now listen to this. James and John didn't go to him in front of everybody. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Well, I would imagine. Jesus called to them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Just think about this comfort, this freedom level with Jesus. Uh, James and John come to Jesus, and, and you know, they're defending Jesus, and these, you know, these, these, these folks are uh, kind of making fun of them. And what's James and John say? Uh, you want us to, we just pray that fire come down out of heaven. And Jesus, Jesus started calling them sons of thunder. These guys, I'm going to have to keep a little closer with me. And that Peter guy, they're going to have to be. It may not have been that they were better. It may have been that they needed more. I mean, you teachers know you don't keep the good students close to you. You keep the ones that are a little bit rougher. That may be Peter, James, and John. I'm not quite sure for, for sure. I mean, Peter, look at, look at this guy in a relationship with Jesus. I want to walk on water. Call me out there to walk on water. I mean, I don't know if that's special treatment or not, but it's certainly trust in the one walking on water. None of the other ones are asking for that. When, when he finds out Jesus is on the shore, it was Peter that jumped out of the boat and started swimming to shore to be with him first. It was, it was Peter's exposure to Jesus that was able to, to get him to say for the very first time, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I've been exposed to all of it. I know that you are different. To whom else would we go? You have the words of life. It was, it was Peter when Jesus said, I got to go to Jerusalem. It was Peter that said, I'll die for you. It was, it was Peter that pulled out his sword at the arrest and cut off Malchus's ear. But notice when Jesus is gone, so is Peter. Peter's strength was tied directly to Jesus. When Jesus was around, Peter was invincible. But when Jesus is removed, Peter is running like a coward, hiding in the bushes. I never knew the man. I don't even know his name. When Jesus is around, Peter is powerful, but when Jesus is gone, he goes limp. But once the Spirit indwells Peter, he's never the same. When something new is coming, Peter was first. When something had to be said, Peter said it. He was safe when he was near because of this relationship. Think about the safety and the freedom and the comfort. Listen, I am convinced that everybody wants to be known and everybody is searching for freedom. It's one of the reasons why we stay frustrated all the time because we don't feel like anybody ever really understands us. But to be able to live at this level, and Jesus is calling us to live at this level with people, not everyone, but some. Everybody needs some people in their life. At this level, there was something special about the closeness and the honesty that was forged between this small, transparent group. And in his flesh, Jesus benefited from it as well. He leaned on them emotionally, too. This is probably best seen in Matthew chapter 26. And we'll begin reading in verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went and to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter, the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Notice that after he placed, after he placed the nine 
or eight, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and it was there that he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, notice the insight, notice the honesty that he gave them. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch what? With me. He needed that, that with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and he found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and he prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And he came to the disciples and said, sleep and take your rest later on. See the hours at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Just notice the, the closeness that Jesus felt, the connection that he had to these inner circle and the honesty that Jesus was hoping to lean on their strength as well. They just sense almost loneliness in their sleep. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to have people that you knew you could always rely on? Jesus could have had any number of methods for his ministry. He could have transferred his ministry to one that he could have trained quite well, like, a, like an apostle Paul. I'm going to give it all to him and see what he can do with it. He could have refused all of the personal relationships and, and, and concentrated on crusades and speaking only to the thousands and let the word trickle out that way as they figure it out. He could have chosen the 70 and just poured into them, maybe a year of 70 and another 70 the next year and on and on. He could have held classes and seminars. He could have done all sorts of things. He could have lived a longer life and poured into many more people. But that wasn't the plan. The plan was the masses have now been motivated. They've seen and they've considered a different kingdom. The 70 know, now know how to serve this personal group I've poured my life into, but these guys can lead. These guys, these guys will die. These guys will die. And that's how you imitate Jesus. Die. Mark chapter 3, verse 14. He chose them that they might, this is all 12, that they might be with him. And then he might send them out to preach and that they might drive out demons. Jesus chose intentionally, long-term, closed, all-in, small groups as his primary strategy for disseminating the kingdom, and turning the world upside down. I don't know if there's anything to this or not, uh, but I was looking at Jesus' you know, interactions with all of the 12 at different times and just looking for the trends and looking for... How, I, mean, I really, I mean, for the last probably three years, I've been studying Jesus's framework for how he, did, literally how he did everything and how he spoke to this one versus this one. And at what point of ministry was Jesus in versus this time? And, and just really dissecting it. And what I've noticed in Matthew chapter 10, verse four, one, one through four, which is, now that's Matthew's account. Matthew was with him. Uh, Mark chapter three, you got Mark most likely heard the gospel through the apostle Peter. Luke most likely heard it through the apostle Paul. In any case, in all three of these, Matthew 10, Mark 3, Luke 6, the same four disciples appear in the same groups in each of these passages. Peter is always first, regardless of who writes it. But the, all three of these writers list Peter, James, and John, and Andrew in the first list. Philip is always number five. James the less, always number nine. In all three lists, 
The other ones are found at random within those subsets of lists. I just wonder if Jesus didn't break all of these men down into smaller intimate groups with these men as leaders over each. Peter the first, Philip the second, James the last, the third. I don't know that for sure. But I know because of Jesus' own personal ministry that he saw the value of pouring in to the few and changing the world. What does that mean for us? It means that life in relationships matter. It means that Satan is going to lure us away through hurts and he's going to throw betrayals at us and he's going to put wolves in our lives that we get hurt by. He's going to, he's going to allow there to be fear and sin. I think when we were singing earlier, I was thinking about the, 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 the writer is well with my soul. I was thinking about the writer. When he, most of the time, I, I think you know, when, you get, when you're writing something, you go, oh, that's really good. And you try to find a rhyming word. Um, you know, oh, that's, that's powerful right there. I mean, maybe if you don't write, that may not happen. But certainly writers have to be proud at some points in their writing. But when the writer of this particular hymn says, my sin, oh, bliss is this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. I mean, what what kind of writer writes, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought? I think about Satan throwing sin into our life when we forget that it's been atoned for by Jesus because we choose information or attendance over imitation. It's easy to forget, and we can sit here week after week and be burdened down with sin. Nothing gets us more, I think, I'm going to wrap up with this, I think nothing gets us more than the fear of vulnerability. The fear of giving people the right to speak into our life. And yet, these are the ones who most imitated Jesus. These stimulate Christ's likeness like no other. Now, listen, we may not be immediately ready for this type of relationship but we should be willing to work, allow it to work its way. We won't grow beyond it. Without it, there's no Christ-likeness. It's in this group, it's in this group that we really find Jesus and we can model him. There is no form of the Christian life except for the one lived in community. A case cannot be made for the Christian life lived privately and alone with occasional or even regular slips into crowds of people listening to sermons. I'm not opposed to sermons. There's a part of it that finds its place in disciple making, but it does not make disciples. One of the essentials that everything else flows from in the book of Acts is fellowship, togetherness. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching into the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Scripture says it's in these relationships that the world notices and what the world itself desires is to be known without fear. You know, what, what difference does it make, Pastor? I'm telling you, I feel like as, not just as a church, but as Christians, we are stuck. We're stuck. We're stuck being educated and being satisfied with being educated instead of imitating Jesus. It's here that we find those who know us best know how to comfort us best, how to help us in our pain and our fear and those whom we find the most intimate. And even that word intimate, we're almost afraid to talk about because it makes us uncomfortable. Relationships are the best solution for care. 
Most of our reluctance of growth and fruitfulness comes from where we have our roots. If you have your roots in a decision that you made at one time, those roots won't bear fruit. The only possible way for fruit to be a result in your life is to have your roots in Jesus, not in a decision you made, in Him. If the fruit isn't right, then the fruit isn't right. If the root isn't right, the fruit isn't right. It's obvious from Scripture that Jesus expects us to be rooted in Him. Therefore, we are His body rooted in one another. It is the proof that we trust Him, that we trust each other, and that we be trustworthy. And the qualification for being trustworthy is love. Loving one another unconditionally. And we have to learn trust and trust again and love and serve. God gives us people to learn that through. We are in a to learn series that can't that's be learned uh, apart. Sort of a, a DNA kind of series where I'm hoping to, to establish at least some philosophy of ministry as to why we organize the way we, we do. While what we the goals offer are. the things learn that how to we relate. learn how to connect, that we offer how to be is family. not just their From good ideas, but we're and trying our best to be obedient to the, brothers this and sisters. Is, this is the Lord's church. It's not you know, there ours. There are over 50 so one another in Scripture, and it's in this small he group. He calls us to do. That, in that in one 1 John, I want you to hear this again. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, he says, John says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. You see a progression of closeness. We move from acquaintances. Acquaintances will smile. Might even say, how are you? We move from there to friendly. We might say, how are you with a handshake? We're a little closer, but we still keep our distance. Friends will say, how are you really? And actually make a posture toward a person and actually have a conversation. But to be able to move from that and to be able to read somebody because of your intimacy with them, that's what Jesus wants for us. What is it that, what is it that keeps you from people? I just want to cut through all of it for a moment. What is it that causes you to be timid? I will tell you, it's the same thing that keeps you from growing. It's the same thing that keeps us content in learning, but not imitating. You can't grow in relationship to God with barriers between you and people. You see, growth comes from obedience and service. That's imitation. You say, well, I'm afraid of being betrayed. Yeah, it's because of fear. Or I'm, a, you know, I'm, I'm fearful for whatever reason. And the reason people are afraid of those relationships is because they're relationships you can't control. Maybe you say, I have so many distractions in my life. I'm just so busy. I don't have time. And some would even say, I just don't need those relationships. You don't have any desire for it. Some people, you know, I know some people say, I just don't like people. I've seen church people say, I don't people well. I know, it's true. A lot of people don't people well. Shame on you. If you don't people well, it ain't people's problem. It's your heart. You see, if you start imitating Jesus, you are a people person. You may not be a, you know, outgoing, personable, charismatic charmer. I don't know that the kingdom needs any more of those. We need real people who care about people and love people. Imitating Jesus. You don't need to be charming. You only have to be gifted. Just imitate Jesus. Satan always tries. You think about every relationship, especially like marriage. You think about all the difficulties our culture is experiencing in marriage. Why? Because that's where you see intimacy. 
And if Satan can wedge in there, parenting, boy, if you could just get in there, destroy those relationships. Churches, boy, sometimes the most, the pettiest things separate people. And then time creates this terrible wound. It doesn't heal. But remember, Christ-likeness is the goal. So ask yourself, who is pushing you? Who is pushing you? These may be people you need to turn into. You may not be able to identify because you're not being available. Maybe you're not being approachable. People feel like, man, they're like a porcupine. I, I can't get close to them because they just hurt me. Well, you know, second question is, who are you pushing? Who, who are you praying? I think about all the times that Jesus prayed. He must have because he said, I have not lost any of those that you gave me. And Jesus called these men because the Father showed him who it was that he was to pour his life into. When is the last time that you prayed, Lord, show me who I'm supposed to give my life to? Who am I supposed to invite into my life that I might imitate you and provoke imitation of you in them. So that's kind of how I want to close today. I'd like for you to stand with me. And I want us to pray this morning. Go ahead and bow your heads and close your eyes if you will, please. And I want us just to pray. Whatever it is, what is it? Is it an event it is a perceived fear. Is it a learned fear? What is it that keeps us from cultivating intimacy, being honest? Is there sin in your life that you don't want anybody to ever find out about? Are there things that you don't want people to know? Listen, if that is true, you can't be like Jesus with sin in your life. We need to repent. And we need to turn our life to him so that he can make us whole. Is there wounds in your life from some other experience that you've had where you've been hurt? Maybe, maybe today is the day that you just need to bury those wounds and allow the balm of Gilead to heal your wounds. Let Jesus come into those broken places. Listen, we all can't have those relationships with each other. But surely... Surely, if the King of Kings develops these kinds of relationships, surely we need them. So today, why don't you just pray and ask the Holy Spirit, is there something in me that's keeping me from people? Is there some controlling component of my life? Is there some sin that I don't recognize or maybe a sin that I do. There's some reason I only want to get so close. Just ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what that is and lay it down. And it will be the first step toward the imitating of Jesus. Then you will be free to trust again. I believe that the Lord is calling us deeper. Some are ready now. Some need to begin a process of getting ready, being open, inviting people in or being willing to say yes when someone approaches you about relationship. Just getting to see more of Jesus, closer to Jesus. This morning, if the Holy Spirit is already bringing things to your mind, things that you know that if somebody were to ask you, you'd either lie about or you would avoid the answer. Why don't you just lay that down today? Repent of that today. Live free. Live whole. That's when you begin to grow.
what would it even look like? I think if, I'm going to just read it. Psalm 133, listen to this. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, the ordination of the high priest, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, the northern boundary of Israel. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. What? When brothers dwell in unity. Lord, today as people are praying, I just ask that you would help us to, to dwell together in unity. To be a people that are free to live open, intimate, close lives with the people that you give us. And I have no doubt that there are people in this room that need each other and vice versa. And, and I ask that you would help us, Lord, to be a church that is just free and clear, accountable and vulnerable and humble and a servant to all. And may we learn from one another and grow together and be leaders in this Jerusalem. And may we turn the world upside down throughout the whole river valley as we live at another level of freedom and we're not encumbered by fear and we're not encumbered by strife and we're not encumbered by, by sin and defeat and wounds and all the distractions and busyness of importance and power and money and all the barriers that Satan has put before us and called them important. Lord, I pray that we would just mow all that down and just imitate you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Today, if you want to talk maybe more about what it would look like to be in relationship with people, or maybe there's things in your life that you are ready to get rid of and just need to have a conversation, uh, don't leave here today without being free. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.